Oh, welcome to the CBIA BizCast. I'm your host, Ali Warshavsky. And today on our podcast, we speak with Pfizer's Patty Compton. Patty is the head of statistical programming and analysis at Pfizer and works out of their Groton location. Welcome, Patty. Thanks, Ali, for having me today. Yeah, you've had such a busy year and a half. Uh, you have 20 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, correct? Yes, that's correct. What got you interested in that? And can you explain more about what exactly your role is at Pfizer for those of us who might not know what a statistical programming and an analyst is? <laughs> Thanks for the question. Yes, um, I, I started my career actually in a, in a rat lab looking at the impacts of, of morphine. And as a graduate student, I quickly learned that um, I also had to do the analysis myself. So I learned to, to code, I learned to look at how to visualize data, and it turned out I was better at that. And so one of the first jobs I had right out of grad school was to analyze political data for the European Union. And that lasted about a year and then I found my home back at Pfizer where I started to code and analyze data um, on back in the medical field. And, and that brings me to my current role. One of my, my key jobs or, or expectations are that I prepare the analysis for all of our medicines. So when you buy a medicine and you see that neat little insert um, that, that explains the safety of the product or perhaps some potential adverse events. That's what I do. I compile those um, that information so that you're completely aware of the safety of the product. Wow, that's interesting. And to think that they're really like you always hear the rat labs, but they exist and you were they working do. on. <laughs> they do exist. They serve an important purpose uh, prior to getting into the human trials. Mm -hmm. Now, Pfizer has locations throughout the country. What particular work is being done at the Groton location? Yes, well, Groton, if you, if you don't know, happens to be the largest um, research hub in, in the Pfizer universe. Um, actually, over 4,000 scientists uh, come to work and, and support the Groton site, about 2,500 uh, actually our Pfizer colleagues, and then 1,500 from other supporting businesses in Connecticut, all working to develop new medicines to really help change um, patients' lives. And I'm proud to say really the, that nearly every Pfizer product has been developed in some part by folks in, in Groton. And as you may um, imagine for the, the last year and a half or, or yeah, I guess almost two years. Yeah. Um, we've been focused on our response to help with the pandemic, which has amounted to, of course, our uh, COVID vaccine, and more recently, some development work in a COVID antiviral treatment. So lots of stuff going on in the Groton site. Yeah, that leads me into my next question, which is what role did the Groton location play in the development of the vaccine? Because as you mentioned, there's so many processes that go into developing this vaccine. And I think that when we spoke before, some of the earliest process of developing it was at Pfizer or and the Groton location that is. Yeah. So 
Groton did play many roles. There are exceptional teams of experienced scientists working in the safety space, in the design space, in something that we call supply chain, clinical trials, technology, and of course, uh, statistical programming and analysis. I, I'm happy to say that each of these areas take a look and play a role either on the medicine development itself, what's actually in, in the drug. Um, we also support the subjects, so many, the, the thousands of subjects that enroll in our trials. Um, the sites where we collect the data, the supply chain who ensures that um, the, the vaccine or the drug is getting to, to the site, and then of course, um, the analysis. The Groton site played a role in each of those spaces and continually worked uh, day after day to figure out how could we do that more effectively. When did you start to see the location pivot into this vaccine uh, development in 2020? Um, was it right when kind of the world started to shut down? Um, was it a little bit before? You know, when did you, your life really start to change? So um, Pfizer's no stranger to vaccines. We have years of experience working with vaccines and our, our team in the Groton site is always looking at ways how to innovate designs or help with the process. So let me just state first, we were primed to help solve this, this pandemic. Um, but I would say, uh, and we were actively exploring for what our role is. Obviously when we signed uh, the relationship with BioNTech, we decided to progress that compound um, as fast as possible. And so that was really early on in the pandemic, March, 2020 where our role was to come in and really test the science. And, and that's what the, the Groton site did. We took that compound and we brought all of our expertise on how to get that compound to the sites, get subjects to enroll, collect the data and ensure that it was uh, safe and efficacious. And right at that time, it was clear, um, made by our own CEO, that this was the primary focus. Never have I seen um, an organization pivot that way and really turn its attention to one compound simultaneously, really pulling out the stops to, to find out, was this a safe compound? Could it work? And you and you kind of said that you never have seen anything like that at Pfizer, just everyone focusing on one thing. But throughout your career, you've probably seen a lot of um, different types of viruses develop and come out and people get scared like H1N1. But have you any ever seen anything like COVID? You know, was H1N1 a little bit different than what's going on now in terms of the vaccine process? Yeah. Um nothing like this. Even with H1N1, it, that's roughly around the first time the FDA declared that um, an emergency use application type of situation occurred where, where every uh, research center is encouraged to please take a look at what you have in your pipeline. How can you develop it more quickly? H1N1, MERS, Ebola, none of those really materialized quite the same way as, as COVID-19 uh, did. 
And so really the amount of attention needed to address this quickly was sort of the every minute matters. There were thousands of deaths happening. Um, we looked to, to bring um, all kinds of collaborations together um, to make use of what uh, innovation we already had. Some of them include machine learning, um, support to how we could get subjects, many from the Connecticut community to enroll in our trials. How could we share the data and make transparent um, where we were at with the trial? There was a great public interest in this trial and we wanted to make sure uh, we were communicating. And frankly, even internally, all the way up to our CEO, at least two hours a day were dedicated to what else? How could we make this simpler, faster for our subjects? Um, how could we make it uh, faster for um, our sites to, to collect the data? And I saw all kinds of collaborations. I saw sites working around the clock. Normally, they already were dealing with patients who were in the hospital. And normally they may not enter in their data, say to the end of the week. Every minute mattered. So they were entering the data in extremely quickly. We subjects may have had trouble getting to a site because of a transportation, shutdowns, changes in schedules, work from home. Um, our own IT department out of Groton put together some white glove service to ensure that subjects could communicate their information effectively. Never have I seen sites, internal colleagues, and even collaborators work with such focus as if literally every minute mattered, and it did. Um, when you guys are doing those test trials, did a lot of Pfizer employees volunteer to get the vaccine to be a trial in it? So there are rules against uh, uh, of when a Pfizer colleague can, can um, volunteer. As you imagine, um, we cannot bias the results. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to be uh, far removed from the trial in order to, to participate uh, in that space. That's just um, for ethical reasons. However, our neighbors, our communities, all the people around us in, in Connecticut and across the world we're, we're looking to, to support us. And that was just um, amazing. Yeah, I'm sure that um, that's interesting. I never even thought of the bias part of it, right? Um, and in right. such a crazy time, it's interesting that um, the community did come out and support it in that area. Um, you know, what did the rapid vaccine development mean for a data scientist? I mean, were you even sleeping at, at this point of, um, you know, I guess maybe a few months in when things started to come together and there was an idea of a vaccine that could work? Um, you know, how did this data that you had to analyze lead to this accelerated development and finally the shots in the arm? So for a data scientist, this trial is an extraordinary journey. Um, you have to imagine we enrolled over 40,000 subjects. So that's how big the community was that was needed to, to make a, a statement on, did we achieve safety? Did we achieve efficacy? Our, our typical trials are, are far less than, than that number. And so having 40,000 
subjects willing to, to participate was extraordinary. Every single one of their data points is like gold to us um, and brought us a, a step closer. And we tried to support every single one of those data points getting in. We generated tons of reports to see if perhaps a data point was missing. Um, is, is it, uh, we would summarize some of it. We, we'd share the information with external safety committees to ensure that the profile was understood. Um, of course, we had to wait until we had uh, enough information before uh, safety and efficacy uh, were collected before we could do um, unblinded analysis. But it, for a data scientist to have 40,000 subjects worth of data is, is um, a dream to have to analyze it. And, and it makes it sometimes easier to, to draw conclusions. I'm very thankful for the, those 40,000 people who really showed courage and enrolled in our trials to, to support um, science. And, and because we enrolled um, that many, we were able to, to really make um, some conclusions a, a lot faster. Um, I think uh, many of us thought that um, we would have the, the safety data first, but with 40,000 subjects, um, we hit the efficacy data first and then uh, the safety data. Which is a lot of people talk about all the time now, right? That they are so concerned that it was so fast, the rollout of the vaccine, but you just kind of explained that the safety and effectiveness was determined, right, by these 40,000 volunteers. And that's how you ensure, and that's why you're given the emergency authorization. It, let me try that again. You are given the emergency authorization after all of these trials are done. Yeah, so let me say a little bit more uh, about that. Um, a couple of things. Um, the safety is, is measured weekly um, by external review committees. So they, um, uh, even independent of Pfizer, have a view on how our trial is going. What sort of side effects are they seeing? Is there anything that we should be concerned about? Daily, hourly, our internal clinicians are, are reviewing this data to, again, make sure is there something unusual going on that we, we need to take a closer look. With respect to the emergency um, use application, the, the FDA sets out those requirements. So while we probably would have liked to file sooner, um, there were minimum requirements. You had to have um, a minimum of two months safety data for the, U, uh, the emergency use application. And you needed a minimum of six months safety data um, for the final uh, submission or for licensure. And so um, that's what we had to wait for. We, we happened to achieve efficacy sooner. Um, if you, what that means is that some subjects were on placebo and some subjects were, had the COVID vaccine. We had to wait until there were enough um, cases, positive COVID cases before we could understand or unblind the trial to make sure that the, the drug worked and we had to make sure all of those subjects um, fit in the right median amount of safety data. It's at that point we could declare and make a conclusion that the trial uh, was fit 
uh, for purpose for an emergency use application. So the science went at the speed of the enrollment. It went at the speed of uh, subjects giving the data, the speed of sites being able to uh, confirm the data that it's accurate. And then of course, um, us analyzing the data and communicating the results to the health authorities for their evaluation. So um, while it seems fast, when you enroll 40,000 subjects and the whole community is dedicated to turning around the data a whole lot faster than they ever have before, you get some insights into it, uh, particularly when there's a, a situation of an emergency use application. And thank goodness, right, um, for the support of local health officials turning this data around and giving it to you. Now, when we were speaking earlier, um, you said people seem to care and just recognize your role in the community a little bit more now after the past year and a half, and even to the point where your neighbors left you a little bit of a surprise at your house. Yes, yes, they did. Um, I have to, to uh, well, I'm enjoying some of the benefits. First, at the global level, um, sometimes when I say where I have to work, I have to actually spell it out. Is this Pfizer or, or Pfizer? And, and really with such attention paid to our COVID vaccine and the, and the data, the global community began to understand uh, Pfizer's role in this product. And, and so a lot of lessons were, were shared um, through advisory committees, through conferences, how we, how we actually manage this product. Locally, we're 4,000 people really living in the communities here. We, we, we work here, obviously, our children go to school here, we volunteer here. And the tremendous support in our neighborhoods um, to, to cheer us on, um, to participate in the trials has been nonstop. And when we actually finally um, were able to publish that we had achieved safety and efficacy, it really brought the community to another turning point of hope. I think a lot of people were, were being impacted, didn't know how they thought this would, would get us uh, to turn a corner. And here was some news. And so yes, my, my neighbors brought me balloons, left me notes saying, I can't believe we may be actually be in a position to, to manage this uh, together and, and really put the virus behind us. So it was um, certainly the highlight of, of my career and didn't even realize that my whole neighborhood was following it so closely and, and yet they were and showed up. Oh, that's so awesome. Cause I think that um, as a Connecticut resident, right? We know Pfizer, we respect Pfizer, but to see um, even more respect for it throughout this pandemic when you work those long, hard hours is just nice. It's a nice little, um, nice to be recognized like that. Um, you know, I'm sure that what's next in terms of uh, drugs that might help anyone who has, who unfortunately does catch it. I'm sure you're already working on them, but that is something what's next for Pfizer as well. Yes, it is. We, we've actually started uh, a clinical trial on a COVID antiviral. Um, we, we, we are in the middle of that trial and as soon as science will allow us, we will publish those results. And again, 
we're optimistic that we have uh, an alternative um, to not only just the vaccine to, to prevent it, um, but uh, a treatment if, if, if it's unfortunate that you do come down with um, the virus. And then this is non-Pfizer related. We did this once before and with some of our guests, just uh, since you live in Groton and are part of the community, oh, what's your favorite place to eat? Do you have a favorite restaurant in the area? We do a rapid fire of get to know our guests and where they live. <laughs> oh, okay. So um, yes, that would be in Stonington, the Dog Watch Cafe. Just love to hang out there. One of our favorites, we go there all the time. And what about, maybe this is like, yeah, the hidden gem of the area. Uh, maybe a place, a park where you just read or a place you really like to visit that you feel like not too many people know about. Um, for that, um, <laughs> can I say I live on the Connecticut, Rhode Island border. So I go to Wilcox Park. That's which, fine. <laughs> which is in Westerly. Um, and so they have Shakespeare in the park. There's a strong partnership between Pawkatuck, Connecticut and, and Westerly, Rhode Island, and they have art fairs. And it's a little less touristy than, than Mystic or, or, or Groton can be. So if you need a hidden gem, um, come support uh, the businesses uh, on that side as well. Yeah, um, I love that area, but I know what you mean. If you can get away from like the Rhode Island beach crowd, the yeah. Connecticut beach crowd and find a quiet little place, you're in heaven on a Saturday. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and um, the work you're doing. And hopefully we can follow up with some better news um, in the future from you about all the things that you guys are developing. And um, no one will be asking you how to spell Pfizer in another <laughs> year, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Of course. It. Well, thanks for listening to the CBIA BizCast. You can listen and subscribe to our podcast on Apple or YouTube or head to CBIA.com.